Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. I don't know about you guys, but uh, Tom Walks, if that whole thing, uh, tech doesn't work out for you, bro, you got to hit a future in uh, comedy, man. <laughs> I mean, that is, <laughs> I, I mean, I thought I'm just, I'm just going to walk off stage and just let Tom come up and riff for 30 minutes, man, because that was, that was fantastic. Thank you, Tom. Well, hey, will you um, join me in prayer as we begin our time together this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, many of us carrying burdens concerns and cares from this past week. Lord, our hearts are anxious with things that are happening in the world around us. And so we come, Father, with open hands, Lord, with open hearts, and ask that you would speak to us in this moment. God, that you would reveal to us your truth from your word, that we may walk out of here closer to you than when we first came. We thank you for that and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a question. What was the last movie, book, or television series that you streamed on your favorite streaming network? Think about it for a second. For Don and I, it was 1883 on the Peacock channel. And for those of you who now have that image of that media in your mind, I want to ask you that was there a theme of redemption tied somewhere into that movie? More than likely, there's a good chance that somewhere embedded in that movie, that TV streaming series, or that book, you encountered redemption. Because let's be honest, as human beings, we love a good redemption story, don't we? I mean, there is something that just kind of stirs in the deep reaches of our soul when we see a bad guy suddenly turn to the good side right? There's something that stirs inside of us when we witness star-crossed lovers get a second chance. Maybe not for me, but for my wife, certainly that would be the, a, a truth. Or when we see bitter rivals who become friends because they've chosen to embrace forgiveness. Tales of redemption are something that are as old as human storytelling for almost as long as human beings have existed. But it's not just in the movies or in our books or in our television series that we like redemption. It's also in our famous athletes, right? Our songwriters, our actors. Anytime we hear or see someone overcome incredibly difficult circumstances, we like to cheer them on and root them forward as we see them reemerge, redeemed from whatever fire they walk through. I mean, if you think about some of our most popular television stories today, some of the most popular television that we watch, it's often about real people who are talking about circumstances that they've triumphed over and emerged from desperate places of despair, of defeat, or loss. And here's the truth. I'm just like you guys. I love a good redemption story as well. I mean, how could I not? I grew up watching over and over and over again one of the greatest redemption stories in the history of cinema, 
And of course, you know I'm going to say it. It's Star Wars, right? It's Darth Vader being redeemed from the dark to the light. And in my mind as a child, in my psyche, I had this vision of the climatic scene at the end of Return of the Jedi when Luke is bravely trying to carry his father, Darth Vader, sorry, spoiler alert if you didn't know that, to, for, away from a pending doom. And as Vader is lying here, Luke looks at him and says, Father, I must save you. And Vader says back to him, Luke, you already have. Tell your sister you were right. And my five-year-old heart just melts inside of me because the man that had haunted my dreams as a villain has been redeemed and comes over to the light side. And the truth is, is that even though I love redemption, I have a very peculiar relationship with it. Because while I may desire and may even root for redemption in others, I may be quick to root for redemption in others, I'm slow to believe in it for myself. While I might desire or be quick to root for redemption in others, I'm slow to believe in that for myself. And I think that's probably for a multitude of reasons. Probably most of us here could understand. More than anyone else, I am familiar and intimately know my own failures. I know how many times I've messed up. I know the thoughts that run through my head better than anybody else. I've seen firsthand the consequences of my sin. And those feelings of being unworthy of receiving redemption intersect across all areas of my life. I mean, it happens in my marriage at times. I feel unworthy of being redeemed as a husband. And don't let the shiny veneer of social media fool you, right? I had a friend text me just a few days ago and said, oh, Nick, I love to see you and Don on social media. You're so cute and perfect and bleh. <laughs> I'm just thinking, if you only knew what a jerk I can be. My wife's perfect, but me, I can be a jerk. It happens sometimes in my friendships. I feel unworthy of being redeemed because I know that there are people in my life that I've let down. Or even as a pastor, that the words, that my words and actions carry a weight that can cause tremendous amount of heartache and pain to people if I'm not careful. In a sense, I am a villain in my own story. And as a villain, I oftentimes see myself as an unredeemable character. And this is especially true, not only in all these other areas that I've just talked about, but it's especially true in my faith journey. Because sometimes I have a tendency to think that my past failures, my past mistakes, my past sins somehow exclude me from ever being redeemed fully by the goodness of God. And we all have that one mistake, don't we? We all have that one area in our lives that we tend to look at and say, how in the world is it that God can love me when I've messed up so badly. And if you are feeling that this morning, I want to tell you this morning, church, that I have those same feelings too. That there are things that are part of my past that I look back on and I have shame and guilt over. And I just think, man, if, if somebody knew this about me as a pastor, if somebody knew how badly I've messed up, they would look at me and say, there's no way that man can be redeemed. There's no way that God could take that man and change him. And so maybe for you this morning, 
you're sitting there and you're feeling and remembering some of your own failures, some of your own mistakes, some of your own sins that perhaps at times have caused you to feel like an unredeemable character as well. Because intellectually, I think most of us as Christians sitting here this morning, if you've been a Christ follower for any amount of time, I think intellectually, most of us can probably conceive the idea that we are forgiven, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We know that the Bible teaches that. I think most of us can intellectually understand that at the cross of Christ, there is power for the atonement and redemption of every sin. But knowing that here, and knowing it here, is a huge, huge difference. As I say often from this stage, the difference between knowing it in your head and knowing in your heart is much more than the 12 inches that separates the two. And so maybe for some of you sitting here this morning, maybe it was an angry word that you said to someone. Perhaps it was an opportunity that you missed, a chance that you should have taken. Maybe it was years that you felt were wasted in a toxic relationship that was destructive. Perhaps maybe it was a moral failure where the consequences of which still follow you to this day. Or maybe it was a breach of trust with someone that you cared about deeply. The truth is that whatever it is, whatever it is that comes to mind as you think about that, like me, perhaps you wrestle with a creeping doubt about God's ability or desire to redeem you as a villain in your story. Perhaps you have a creeping doubt that God may desire or have the ability to redeem you. And maybe that's not you this morning. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I fully receive God's redemption in my life. And if that is you, praise God, come tell me how you do it after church. But maybe your issue is less about receiving redemption for yourself and more about giving redemption to others, specifically the villains in your story. Because I started this message by saying this this morning, that we love to root for redemption in other people. But the truth is, and let me clarify that by saying that we love to root for the redemption of other people when they haven't wounded us personally. Because I can root for a villain like Tiger Woods on Sunday at the Masters, right? I can cheer him on because I get excited to see this man redeemed on a public stage. But the fact of the matter is, is that Tiger Woods never lied to me. Tiger Woods never deceived me. Tiger Woods never abused me. It's much harder still to earnestly believe that God would redeem a villain in our stories that has wounded us directly. And so for some of you, maybe that's a parent who neglected you. Maybe that's a friend who betrayed you. Maybe it's a spouse who broke trust. Or maybe it's a pastor who trafficked in spiritual abuse. The truth is, is that, church, whenever we suffer injury at the hands of a villain in our story, it's very easy for our hearts to move to a place where we begin to practice redemption for me, but not for thee. I can receive redemption, but not you because you've hurt me. 
And so I think all of us sitting here this morning, while we might be able to say to ourselves, we love, we love a great redemption story in a movie or a book that we're reading, I think most of us have a tendency to believe that past failures will exclude either ourselves or others from being fully redeemed by God. And so the question that I I want us to challenge us with this morning, I want you to wrestle with me this morning, is this. How do we become a people of faith who more fully embrace the redemptive work in our lives and the lives of others? How do we move from people who say, how can this be, how can God use somebody who's messed up so badly to become a people who say, I believe that God can and will use someone who's messed up so badly? The good news is we're not alone, church. We're not alone this morning. And just like many of us today who are maybe wrestling in our seats with this question, the early church had a hard time believing that God could redeem a villain in their midst as well. Except this wasn't a villain who had just kind of stretched the truth or said something uh, mean online to somebody. This particular villain was guilty of imprisoning and murdering followers of Christ Jesus. And so the question becomes, how did they get to a place of receiving redemption and giving redemption to that person? And so I want to invite us this morning, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, to turn to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to look at what is an astounding and almost too incredible to believe redemption story. And I think as we look in Acts chapter 9, we're going to find some powerful truths that we can cling to whenever we start to wrestle with the question, how can God redeem somebody who's messed up like I have? And so uh, before we jump to the text in Acts chapter 9, as you're turning there now, let me give you some background on what's happening in case you're unfamiliar with the book of Acts. The title, Acts, is actually a derivative of the Greek word praxis. Say praxis. There you go. You're speaking Greek this morning. Praxis is a word that was used in early Christian literature to uh, describe the great deeds of the apostles and of the early believers. And so the title of the book of Acts accurately describes the contents of the book because all Acts is is really just a series of brief accounts chronicling the lives of the apostles in the immediate decades following Jesus' death and resurrection. And so as we arrive on the scene in Acts chapter 9, we're going to find that the early church, which was actually known as the way, is growing in both size and influence in Jerusalem. And it was so funny, I was talking with Dawn about this the other night, and she said something that made me laugh, but she said, man, it seems like that even the first church couldn't get away from some of those kitschy names, right? The way, like they would fit right in with a lot of churches today, like Thirst or Revolution Church or The Way Church. So if you ever wonder where some of these church names come up with, you can point back to Acts 9 and say the very first church started with one of those cheesy Christian names. And so here we have this movement that's happening in Jerusalem. These believers are growing in number and influence, and the success of this upstart religious movement has caught the attention of the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And they see these Christians as apostates, that they are a threat that uh, are going to corrupt, potentially, Judaism. And so they do whatever any good religious fanatic does when they feel their beliefs are threatened. 
they respond with love and respect, right? No. Mm -mm. No, these guys decided we are going to persecute these believers in an attempt to snuff out this movement from spreading beyond uh, Jerusalem. And so the persecution becomes so intense in Jerusalem that many of these believers are forced to flee outside the city, and some of them go as far as 125 miles north to the ancient city of Damascus. But as we're about to see, the safety that they enjoyed in Damascus was going to be short-lived because the fires and the flames of persecution would quickly spread outside of the walls of Jerusalem. So let's jump into our story here in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any that were there that belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So, What's important to understand about these first two verses as we're introduced to this man by the name of Saul is that Saul belonged to this fervent group of the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem. He was part of the religious ruling class. And Saul, like these other religious leaders, was intent on quelling the spread of Christianity in Jerusalem. What might not be as clear to us as we read these verses, is the exact extent to which Saul's persecution went. Because a cursory reading of Acts chapter 9, verse 1, can leave us thinking that Saul was really just nothing more than a theological bully. That if he were alive today, he would be one of those trolls on the internet, just kind of shouting down people, you know, who disagreed with his beliefs. That he really was just nothing more than somebody who was harassing other believers. But the truth is, Saul's persecution of the church was something that was much darker and even more villainous than just bullying. Because we get a clue in that first word, those first couple words in in verse 1, where it says he breathed out. He was breathing out murderous threats. And in the original Greek, that word breathed out literally means that Saul was so consumed so entirely consumed with the idea of threatening and slaughtering Christians that it literally became part of the very fabric of his being. It might be said of Saul that he breathed in and out an air of persecution. It would be much like as we found now living in Wisconsin for three years that many of the ways a native Wisconsinite might live and breathe Packers football right? It's part of your fabric of who you are. You can't change that. It's who you are. Except Paul was living and dying the idea of persecuting others and inflicting harm on other people. And so Paul did this with, it, with just tenacious ability. And so why is this important? Why does this matter to understand the extent to which Paul went to persecute the church? It matters for this reason, because by human standards, if there was ever a man who was undeserving of being redeemed by the hand of God, it was Saul. If there was ever an individual who stood or we thought by human logic, there's no way God can redeem that man, it was Saul. Because Saul was a violent and bloodthirsty individual. He was overcome by his obsessive hatred for the church. And yet despite that, as we're about to see in just a moment, Saul's redemption 
is not only something that defies our human understanding, but it also offers us a flicker, an opportunity to grab a hold of hope for anyone who feels like they are outside of the bounds of God's redemptive mercy. And not because we want to ever get to a place where we're looking to compare ourselves to Saul, right? As we so tend to do oftentimes as human beings, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Instead, we're going to see that it's in Saul's redemption that he provides us hope and an example of God's boundless and unfathomable mercy as he redeems those that he calls in his family. And so we pick up again here in verse 3, and it says this, that as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. He fell to the ground, and a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will, do, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there, and they were speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. And so uh, Saul got up from the ground. He opened his eyes, but he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And so we see in this account in Acts that Saul quite literally sees the light, right? I mean, he's literally blinded by this light. And as astounding as Saul's conversion story is, I want us not to focus so much on the details of the conversion, but more importantly on the fact that our God is the astounding God who redeems him. Because the truth is, God did not choose to redeem Saul because of anything good that was inside Saul. Nor did God take time to look into his cosmic crystal ball and say, ah, I see Saul someday in the future is going to choose me by his own free will and that one day he's going to become a very powerful and, and pragmatic and, and uh, uh, speaker of the gospel. He's going to spread the gospel throughout the nations. And so I'm going to choose to uh, redeem him in this moment. Because the truth is, if either one of those two things were true, that God either looked at Saul and saw something good inside him, or he looked into his future and saw what Saul might become, that would make God's salvation and redemption based on something that was inside Saul. And should God grant his redemption and his salvation on what is based inside of any man, then we know as Scripture teaches that not one of us would be saved. That not one of us would be deserving of being redeemed. Because as you look throughout Scripture, like Romans 3.10 says, no one, not even Mother Teresa on her best day when she was alive, no one seeks God. That's a Nick paraphrase, by the way. No one seeks God. Romans 8.8 says that those who are in the flesh, in other words, those who are unredeemed by a faith in Christ, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice the word it uses here. It does not say will not please God. It says you cannot please God. And so as we know from Scripture that faith and repentance is what pleases the heart of our Heavenly Father, the natural man, the man who does not have faith in Christ Jesus cannot come to believe in the Lord, cannot receive redemption from the Lord unless it is God himself who grants it to him. God's redemptive work is not based on our merits. 
God's redemptive work is not based on anything that we've done or haven't done in this life. And friends, that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the hope of this story of the Apostle Paul, that there is nothing that you or I can ever do that is so bad that will ever place us outside of the boundless and unfathomable reach of God's redemptive work in this world. And so our redemption isn't dependent upon us. And you might be sitting here this morning saying, "Ah, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I have done in my life. I'm going to tell you this morning, church, that as a pastor, I've sat down and had a conversation with people who have cheated I've had conversations with people who have been abusers. I've had conversations with people who are addicts. I've had conversations with people who have murdered other individuals. And my words to them would be the same that they are to you this morning. It does not matter. When it comes to the redemptive work of Christ, it does not matter. And so you may say to yourself this morning, Pastor, you don't know what this other person has done to me. And I'm not trying to disregard the pain that you may feel from that moment. But what I will say is this, is the same thing is true. When it comes to God's redemption in that individual's life, it does not matter. It does not matter. In fact, I would say to you this morning that when we get to a place in our lives where we believe that we somehow stand outside of the redemptive work of God that is the height of our human arrogance because somewhere deep inside of us that grows out of a a belief that we can do something, that there's something that I can do to make myself pleasing in God's sight. Our salvation, our redemption church is based solely on the work of God in our hearts not what you do. It's not what you've done. It's not where you've been. It's not what you've said. It's based on God. And the good news of the gospel is this, is that it means that God can take a man who has breathed out murderous threats, who is a committed enemy of the church, and he can take that man's heart and transform it from intense hatred to a heart that is submitted humbly to him. Our God church is in the business of redeeming villains. Our God is in the business of redeeming villains. And so up to this point in the message, all I've really done is just reinforced a biblical truth that, as we said earlier, most of us can intellectually conceive of, right? This is not something for a lot of us that have been attending Mosaic Church or attending church for any amount of time that we haven't heard before. But the challenge is then, if we know this in our minds, how do we become people who more fully embrace the redemptive work in our lives and in the lives of others? How do we go from someone who says, how can God use someone who's messed up so badly to how can, uh, to I believe God can use someone who's messed up so badly? It's kind of like the child who believes the monster lives under their bed, right? I mean, some of you, or in my case, it was a refrigerator, whatever that may be, But if you have, as a parent, you have a child that believes there's a monster that lives underneath their bed, it does not matter how many times you say to that child, there is nothing that lives under your bed, unless that child accepts that truth as reality in their hearts, they are going to continue to fear that that monster is there. And so we need to go from understanding this truth here to here. 
And I believe the answer to our question, I believe the answer to how we can begin to start doing that practically lies in the second half of Paul's redemption story. And so as we jump back into Acts chapter 9, we're going to find that actually the story starts to shift and it begins to focus on a new individual, a gentleman by the name of Ananias. And so let's pick up our story in verse 10. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Like, I, some, I wish God would be that clear with me sometimes. Like, hey, it's on, it's on this street down here. You need to take a left. He was with Ananias. And go to Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying in a vision. And he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and the harm that he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with an authority from chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I love Ananias' response in this moment because Ananias' response is so beautifully human. It's how so many of us oftentimes choose to respond to God when we experience his redemptive work in our lives or the lives of others. Because oftentimes the first thing we point to is our past. The first thing we point back to is remind God about our past, just like Ananias did with Saul. It's like he said, Ananias said to God, uh, God, I, hey, listen, man, I know you're God and all, and I know you've got this knowledge thing down, but I just feel that it's important in this moment to remind you that you are sending me to go talk to a man who is committed to murdering people just like me. So just so you know, Lord, and notice how God responds back to him in this moment. God does not say to him, oh my gosh, Ananias, Thank you so much. I can't believe I almost did that. I almost forgot what Saul had done. This man is not deserving of redemption. Thank you for your wisdom in this moment, Ananias. No. God says to Ananias, uh-uh. Uh-uh. You don't see him the way I see him. The man who he was is not who he is by my grace and my mercy. He is my chosen instrument. And look, in this moment, Ananias had every right to be concerned. I mean, about Paul's past. I mean, Paul had a history that would be concerning to anyone who was in Ananias' state. But where Ananias' response fell short is that he was trying to reconcile Saul's redemption through the lens of his old identity. He was trying to make sense of it through the lens of his old identity. And that's not what the Bible teaches us as Christ followers. We see in 2 Corinthians, Paul himself, who was originally Saul, wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, the new creation has come. And that um, the old is gone and the new is here. And we see in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, it says that you were taught with regard to your former life to put off your old self, which is becoming corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness 
and holiness. And here's the truth, church. When we come to faith in Christ Jesus, we come into a possession of a new identity in Christ. The old is gone and the new is come. And so when we point back to God and we say, God, yeah, but look at that, we're pointing back to something that no longer exists in our lives. When we point back at God and tell him, yeah, but look at what this person has done, we're pointing back to something that no longer exists. The old is gone and the new has come in Christ Jesus. And here's the crazy part about it. The crazy part, and I know this because I do it myself, is that oftentimes in these moments when we're trying to reconcile our redemption through the lens of our old mistakes, through our old failures, through our old sins, we're the only one who sees it that way. We're the only one who sees ourselves that way. Your Heavenly Father does not see you that way. Your Heavenly Father does not see others that way. We know from uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel uh, 16, 7, that God himself said this, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here's the truth, church. When we see the villain, God sees the heart. Where we see our sin and our failures, God looks at us and says, I see Jesus. I see Jesus in you. And I want you to notice what happens in this moment in our story, that as Ananias begins to catch the vision of Saul's new identity in Christ, something spectacular happens. It says in verse 17 that then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said this, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he received his strength. Now we hear that, but I want you to think about the incredible reversal of perspective that's just happened in between these couple of verses. Paul was a man, or Saul, was a man who had murdered and imprisoned untold numbers of Christ followers in Jerusalem. And it is very likely that some of the very people that Paul had persecuted in Jerusalem were associates, were friends of Ananias. These were men and women that he had broken bread with. These were probably men and women that he had laughed with, that he had worshipped alongside. And imagine in that moment how you might respond if someone had done that to your family and your friends, the pain and the anger that you might feel in that moment. And yet, we see Ananias boldly approach this former reformed murderer of his friends and his family and of his fellow believers. And it says that he lovingly placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother, you're my brother. Ananias in that moment began to, where he started in the beginning, identifying Saul by his old life. He said, God, do you not see who this man was? He went from that to begin to identifying and calling Saul by his new identity in Christ. He said, you are no longer my enemy, but you are now my family. 
And when Ananias does this in this very holy moment, he has the eyes of Christ. He has the eyes that God says he has in 1 Samuel when he says that I don't look at the outside. I don't look at the past, but I see the reformed transformation that has happened in the heart through Christ. And notice what it does for Saul. Notice in this moment what it does for Saul. Saul no longer, it says, um, is laying there. It says that these scales fall off his eyes and that he gets up and he immediately goes and gets baptized. He uh, begins to profess his faith in Christ to other believers. And Ananias had a part in that because he chose to speak to Paul's identity, his true identity in Christ. He spoke life over Paul instead of death over Paul. And here's the application point for us this morning. Is how many of us this day, how many people here today are walking around identifying ourselves and others by our old identities? How many of us are identifying others by things that we've done, things that others have done, instead of referring to them to their true identity in Christ? We have the power to speak life and transformation over our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet so many of us get caught up in negative self-talk where we say, man, you're not good enough or you've messed up or you're an idiot, you've done all these things. Or we turn around and we gossip about other believers and we constantly remind other people about other people's pasts instead of reminding them about the redemption that God has brought about. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. Because I think one of the practical steps that we can begin to take is just very simply to begin to speak. To begin to speak out loud to ourselves and to others who we are in Christ. That we are a redeemed body. That we are part of the family of God. And so this is going to be a little awkward and we've never done this before, but I'm going to try it. Jason's not here, so I've got the mic and that's what happens. I want you to turn around to somebody next to you and I want you to say, You are a new creation in Christ. Go ahead. Okay. So some of you who might be used to perhaps gossiping might have said, I've heard you're a new creation in Christ, but... I don't want to practice it that way. I want you to turn and look them in the eyes and say it with the authority that has been given to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are a new creation in Christ. Turn around and say that to that person again. Okay? So now here's what I want you to do for yourself. Now that we've done that for other people, I want you to speak to yourself. I want you to repeat after me. I am a new creation in Christ. That's pretty good, but let's do it again. I am a new creation in Christ. There you go. 
And that is something that we need to begin practicing, speaking over ourselves on a daily basis, speaking over others on a daily basis. And we're all wired differently, so I don't care how you do it. If you've got to write it on a sticky note and slap it on your bathroom mirror so that's the first thing that you see in the morning, if you've got to memorize 2 Corinthians 5.17 and repeat that to yourself, but begin to speak life over your life the way Ananias did to Saul. Begin to call out what your true identity is in Christ instead of looking back and pointing to your past failures and mistakes. Because church, our God is in the business of redeeming villains. And I think when we begin to remind ourselves that we are transformed and changed, we can go to a place where we more fully embrace God's redemptive power. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.